Well, good morning. My name is Joe Jones. I'm one of the elders here, part of the preaching team. And as Dan was just praying about, we're wrapping up our series on First and Second Samuel this morning. Before we started this series, several of us who would be uh, preaching together or got together and talked about these books of the Bible. And it was a really rich time of uh, discussion and insight into these books. We talked about some of the big picture themes that run through First and Second Samuel. We also tried to come up with a one-sentence summary of, uh, to try to capture what these, these books are all about. And if you were here last week, Pastor Patrick said it really well. He said, God saves his people through his anointed king. And that sentence really summarizes well, in a simple way, the whole of 1 to 2 Samuel. God saves his people through his anointed king. Um, and in 1 to 2 Samuel, David is that anointed king who shares the heart of God himself. But it turns out, actually, that we need a greater king. We humans need a greater king than uh, King David. The king we need, the king we really need, ultimately for salvation from sin and for eternal life, um, his name is Jesus. And the last two chapters of 2 Samuel point us powerfully beyond King David to the king we really need. And so this sermon will focus on that king, the king we most ultimately need, uh, Jesus. So 2 Samuel 23 to 24, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And let's start by looking at how David, King David, is going to talk about another king. He's going to prophesy, he's going to look forward to another king, the king we need. So chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, you turn your Bible there, pull it up on your phone. Um, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Now stop there. We sit up straight and we listen closely when a man is about to utter his last words. Maybe you've been there by the bedside of someone who's dying and they're about to say their, some of their last words. And we listen very carefully in that moment. And here we have the last words of the greatest king of Israel about to speak his, some of his last words. So this is an important prophetic message, not ultimately from David, but as David himself says, this is a message from God. What will he say? Look at verse 3, second part of verse 3. When one rules justly over, man, over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So we can imagine David laying in the bed, 
where he will die. And he thinks back to maybe the high point of his life. That point in which God promised to David that one of his sons would rule not for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or even 60 years, but one of his sons would rule forever and ever. And God made this promise to David and he's thinking about this at the end of his life. And so what he's doing now is he's actually looking forward. He's peering into the future. He's prophesying about someone who will be a forever king, a king who will rule justly over people, a king who will rule in the fear of God. In other words, this is a king who will do right, do what is right before God. In leadership, that's such a huge issue. Just simply, what is the right thing to do before God in this situation? And the king that David looks forward to is this kind of leader. And therefore, he's a king who's going to bring flourishing and renewal to people. You see, the picture that is painted is that when this king comes, it'll be like after you've waited through a dark night and the sun begins to shine on a bright and cloudless morning. Brightness and light or dry ground that has waited for water and the rain finally begins to fall and new life sprouts. I like all the seasons. Yes, I like winter. I like seeing this snowfall. Uh, but my favorite season of all probably is the spring season. That's the time when in the spring you walk outside and Finally, there's that 60-degree sunshine day, and it feels so good. This is the time that the sun's rays bring greater warmth, and then the rain starts falling on the earth, and everything comes back to life. Love that season. And this is what it was like when the Son of God came into this weary world. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Um, Luke is the third gospel, so if you go forward to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke comes before the gospel of John. Turn to Luke chapter 4, and I want to read verses 16 through 19. Luke 4, 16 through 19. It says this, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So this is, he's saying, I'm the king. This is king language. What is he anointed? What is the spirit anointed Jesus to do? Well, to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this year of jubilee, of rejoicing, of shalom, of peace, of exaltation. You see, Jesus was the anointed king who came into this broken world and healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He freed people from bondage and oppression. 
He gave sight to blind people. He forgave sinners of their sins. He always did what was right and good before God. In other words, when Jesus came, it was like the spring sun shining forth on a cloudless morning after a dark and cold night. He, Jesus, when he came into this earth, was like the rain falling on dry ground. Everywhere he went, he brought refreshment and joy and life. And this is our king. Before we were Christians, we were in a dark and dead place. But when we came to know Christ, or rather to be known by him, his light shone on our dark souls. He awakened us to new life. This is what it means to be under the rule of King Jesus. It means that when we submit and surrender our lives to him, when we really bow before him and say, you're the Lord, flourishing and refreshment and life and joy come into our lives. If you submit your will to the will of King Jesus, you will flourish. You won't get healthy and wealthy. You'll suffer, you'll have grief, you'll go through pain, but at a deep level, there will be peace and joy that is beyond the reach of this world. That's what Jesus offers to you as you yield your life to him. And we long for the day when our king comes again, don't we? When he will not only bring refreshment and flourishing to our souls in a complete way, but to our broken bodies and to this broken world as well. Jesus is coming again. Our king is coming again, and he's going to bring flourishing and refreshing with him. But if you reject him, verses 6 to 7 talk about the outcome. Look at verse 6 of chapter 23. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. You see, Jesus, David is looking forward to our true King Jesus, and what Jesus does is he brings every human being to a major fork in the road, the major fork in the road of your life. You see, you either surrender yourself to him humbly and receive the life that he offers, or you harden your heart and live for yourself. You must choose one or the other. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He brings us to a moment of decision, to a fork in the road, so what will it be for you? What will it be for you? David was a great king. And yet, ultimately, he failed. And so, 
What I want us to see next is that David actually, King David, as great as he was, is not the king that we humans need. I'm not going to read all of verses 8 through 24, but those verses basically chronicle the mighty deeds of heroic warriors. We recently watched the movie The Hobbit, and I was struck watching that movie as I watched the war scenes that these types of battles actually happened in the past. Men on the field of battle, face to face, with sword and spear, fighting one another. This actually happened in our history. Mighty warriors struck down hundreds of men with the sword on the field of battle. But the actions of David's mighty men were the heroic deeds of faith. Why do I say these are the heroic deeds of faith? Well, notice how the passage highlights. Look at verses 10 and 11. The passage highlights that the victory was the Lord's. Just like David defeated Goliath, not by dependence on his own strength, but by dependence on the power of God, so these men achieved great things by faith in the Lord. You see, sometimes... Faith leads us through awful trials. Sometimes faith leads us through profound sufferings and pain. But sometimes faith in God leads to heroic victory and amazing stories of God's power. Hebrews chapter 11 details the great cloud of witnesses who show us what it looks like to live a life of faith. And there, I want you to listen to Hebrews 11, 32 through 34, where the writer of Hebrews says this, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. And I wonder if the writer of Hebrews is thinking about David's men who became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. These men were heroes in battle, but more deeply, they were heroes of faith. They trusted in God for the victory. And hear me out. Of some of you, it will be said, that man, that woman, was a hero of faith. That man did amazing things for the name of Jesus in his lifetime. That woman accomplished remarkable things for the kingdom of Christ in her days. That is going to be said of some of you. A few weeks ago, we went to a Wayside Cross banquet. Wayside Cross is a ministry in the area, and one of their areas of ministry is to the jails and prisons in Illinois. And the focus of the banquet was on jail ministry, and there were people sitting in that room doing amazing things for the Lord in the Illinois jails and prisons. One man talked about 
a church plant that they started, listen to this, within Statesville Prison. I mean, okay, we have our St. Charles campus, we have our Wheaton campus, we have our Statesville Prison campus. Amazing. And I think recently, 30-some baptisms of inmates. These are heroic, remarkable works of faith in the Lord. These are men and women of whom the world is not worthy. And these were the type of men that David was surrounded by. Not perfect people, but strong men of faith in battle. And so David had every opportunity to be a great king, to trust in the Lord who had proved himself so faithful in his life, to refuse to trust in himself, in his own military prowess. But ultimately, David let Israel down, and he let them down miserably. Let's read about it. Chapter 24, I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Eror, and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king, in Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider... And decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Now, as I studied this passage these past few weeks, I confess that it was hard. Uh, I really wrestled with this chapter. And some of it is still mysterious to me. And you know what? That's okay. Uh, our puny minds, greatness of God, revealed scripture, some mystery is okay. So I was talking to the Lord these past few weeks saying, I don't understand this, Lord. I don't get it. And when we read the Bible and we don't understand it, the Bible is such a treasure that we shouldn't just give up, but we should be driven to think and pray and ask for the Lord's help, and he will help us. It's like you have a treasure chest, and you have a lock on it, and you try, and, and this treasure chest has, is filled with gold, and you try for one minute trying to unlock the code, and you say, oh, can't figure it out. <laughs> no, none of us would do that. And what a greater treasure we have here to dig in and to understand and find the treasures that are within Scripture. So I did that. And sometimes as you're studying the Bible, things come to you when you're not sitting down and staring at the text and taking down notes, but at some random time, driving in the car or whatever. So I'm watching my son Noah at his wrestling practice, and a few thoughts come to me. So here are four things that I believe the Lord revealed to me about this passage. Number one, I believe that David's sin was ultimately a failure of faith or of trust. He sins by pridefully trusting in the strength of man rather than relying on the power of God. At root level, that's what's going on here in David's heart. David was relying on the military prowess of his people rather than on God's ability to defeat his enemies and give his people rest. Think of it like this. David is acting in the polar opposite way to how he acted when he fought Goliath. Because when he fought Goliath, he said, the battle belongs to me? The battle belongs to the people of Israel? No, what did he say? The battle belongs to the Lord. And here he's saying, the battle belongs to me and what I've built. This is terrible wickedness and sin against the Lord to basically say, I don't need you. I can manage on my own. Thank you very much. This, this is, in fact, the sin that keeps people away from Jesus. And we need to be very careful that we're not relying on human wisdom or strength to the exclusion, exclusion of trusting in God. In middle-class America, this is a huge danger. It is a huge danger for us to live in a way where we're not actually trusting in the Lord, even though we would say we are. 
but deep down trusting in our money, in our success, in our job, in our health. And we build up this illusion of control, and that's exactly what it is. It's an illusion. So where are you saying, I've got this, and I don't need the Lord? The whole Bible points to the central priority of admitting our need for the Lord. For the Lord works for those who dependently look to him and wait for him. So you say, what do I do with that? Well, here's one step you can take. Pray this risky, dangerous prayer. Lord, would you show me reality? Would you show me my true dependence on you? And he'll work in your life in that way. Second thing the Lord showed me in this passage, the people are accountable, and David is accountable for his own sins. Look to me once more at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was, a kindle, was kindled against Israel. Now, we don't know what, exactly what it is, but the people have committed some sin for which the Lord is holding them accountable. The people are accountable for their own sins, which they have chosen to commit against God. And David is accountable for the sin that came out of his own heart. Look at verse 3 again. It says that David delighted in counting the people. You see, this is sin that's coming out of his own heart. And he's held accountable before God for that sin which he chose to commit against God, and we must not miss the fact that each one of us will have to give an account of our lives to God, individually, before God. We can't say, well, I'm this way because this person did this to me, or my sin is excusable because my circumstances were hard. No, ultimately, we're responsible for our own lives and choices, but, third, David's sin and punishment is imputed to the people. We're kind of going layers deeper here in, in this, this text. David's sin and punishment is imputed to the people. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, we see how closely connected the king and the people are. The people's sin is intimately tied up with the king. And the king's sin is closely bound up with the people. Indeed, the king acts as the representative for the people of Israel before God. So here, and I want this little statement to just stick in your mind. The people pay the penalty for the king's sin here. The people pay the penalty for the king's sin. You say, where do you see that in this passage? Well, look at verse 17 of 2 Samuel 24, verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But that's not what happens. God's hand is against the people of Israel for the sin of David. Again, the people pay the penalty 
for the king's sin. Keep that statement in mind. As goes the king, so goes the people. So if you flipped the page to 1 Kings and started reading from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, you'd see this all over the place. As go the king, so go the people. And if you think about it, this principle is true at an even deeper level of Adam and all humanity. All human beings pay the penalty of death for the sin of one man, Adam, who is our representative head. Adam sins, and all humanity receives the death penalty. Now that might seem unfair to you, but keep listening to the end of the message. So forth, we see God's sovereign, mysterious grace at work. God is sovereign over this whole event here that we read in 2 Samuel 24. God is sovereign over everything that happens. But his grace is at work here. For in inciting David against Israel, the ultimate upshot is that David is the Lord's means of their atonement and rescue from God's wrath. So let's finish out 2 Samuel by reading about that now in verse 18. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted. From Israel. You see, if we let this story play out without David's sin and involvement, then the whole nation of Israel would be destroyed by the Lord for their sin against him. Yes, the Lord relented of the disaster, but there needs to be an atonement and sacrifice for sin. So here in this story, at the very end of 2 Samuel, we come back to the riddle of the Old Testament and even of the character of God in light of human sinfulness. Here's the riddle. How can God both punish sin in his justice and forgive sinners in his mercy? That is a riddle.
And here in 2 Samuel, we're pointed forward to the only means of a right relationship with God and of forgiveness and of the wrath of God being satisfied. Substitutionary sacrifice. So let's finish by digging into this. Let's look at one way that King David is different than King Jesus and one way that David is similar to King Jesus. So first, the difference. In the narrative of King David, the people pay the penalty for the king's sin. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, King Jesus pays the penalty for the people's sin. This past Tuesday, my wife Rachel was with the jail ministry and spent time with women in the jail who had completed a Bible-based program called Freedom from Fear. And the women were asked to share what they learned from the 12-week course. And one woman started trying to say and explain the word propitiation. Now, here's a woman in jail who is considering what propitiation means for her personally. Have you ever considered what propitiation means for you personally? Say, I don't know what that word means. Well, propitiation means that when Jesus died on that cross, he absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins. You think of it like a sponge that soaks up liquid. When Jesus was on that cross, he was absorbing into himself the full, infinite weight of the wrath of Almighty God, not for his own sins, but for your sins and my sins. This is what propitiation is all about. And this is how God can both punish sin and forgive sinners. Because in great mercy, God sent his son to take the full weight of the punishment that we deserve for our sins. This is the gospel that we treasure and rejoice in. Jesus propitiated, he satisfied the wrath of God toward our sins on the cross. So we sing this modern hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, and it says this, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So beautiful, isn't it? Jesus, this is our Jesus. This is our Savior. This is our King. So if you came in this morning weighed down by guilt and you say, I cannot believe that I fell into that sin again. And it's like this morning you come here and you're like in a pit, like in a hole of of darkness and burden because of your sin. And you're trying to climb out. Stop trying to climb out because Jesus reaches his hand down and pulls you out. He says to you, all of your sins are forgiven apart from anything you could ever do because I 
finished it on the cross. I did it all for you. And so there's free and full forgiveness for anyone who trusts in Jesus today. This is our gospel, the gospel that we love. This is a king that we love and trust in. In 2 Samuel 24, the people pay for the king's sin. In the gospel, Jesus pays for our sins. This is how David and Jesus are different. How are they similar? Here's the similarity. Just as David refused to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing, he paid 50 shekels silver. So Jesus offered a sacrifice that cost him actually everything. He's the true and better David in this way. David paid monetary value to offer this sacrifice. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He gave his very life. Think of it. Just think of it, the price he paid for you and me. Think of what a high price he paid to come from the joys of heaven and not only to just come and live in this broken world, but to go all the way down, 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 down to the cross, to a cross, to be shamed. And, and the word that comes to mind when I think of the sufferings of Jesus and all that, that he went through is excruciating. The pain he suffered on that cross. And more than the physical pain, he's underneath complete God-forsakenness on that cross. What loss, what suffering, and all for us sinners. What a price he paid to sacrifice himself for our sins. He gave his very life. Thanksgiving, just a few days ago, this past Thursday, we're all, uh, the siblings are at my parents' house, all the grandkids are there, and we go around, the grandkids are all saying what they're thankful for, and it's my house, and the meal, and family, and God, and Jesus. Aren't you thankful for him? Let's pray together. <laughs>